Let us pray. Father God, as we take a moment in your word, allow us to mature, allow us to better understand, allow us to better apprehend who you are to us. Let us consider these things, this moment that we look forward to of heaven descending upon earth. And let it bless us in terms of encouragement. Let it give us wisdom on how we look at judgment. Let us be filled with joy in looking at this unique moment in time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So two weeks I was up here ago, I was up here and we were starting to preach through the plagues and we actually read at the back of the bulletin uh, from this chapter. And I thought at that time that it really would be a good thing for us to look at the end of all things, the end of judgment before we continue forward in the book of Exodus. Uh, I actually don't really consider this even taking a break from the book of Exodus, but more so this is um, an excursion that we're taking together in order to better understand judgment itself. Because we're about to understand judgment after judgment after judgment. And if we are honest about how the Bible speaks about judgment and how kind of modern Christianity looks at the Bible's judgments, uh, there is a tension there. The American Christian Church has learned to whisper about judgments. It's learned to push back on the idea of judgments. It's learned to be uncomfortable with the word judgment. And yet, if you really look at the biblical record with the word judgment, ju judgment is something that can be celebrated with trumpets. We're about to, to hit the moment in Exodus where the waves, the water crashes down on the armies. And Moses and Miriam and the people start singing songs of praise as they see God's judgment wipe out a great multitude of soldiers. Something's wrong when the American church has separated itself. It's almost become like this Buddhist monk towards the concept of judgment. And so I ask at the very beginning, do you have the kind of faith that desires or even can celebrate when evil strongholds are destroyed? Because we are in a post-Christian uh, society now in America. And so it's going to serve us well to, to really understand judgment in the years going forward. To, be, to really hammer home on what this doctrine means. And, and the key thing to really take right at the beginning is this. God's judgments always have a purpose. And the primary purpose is to bring us closer to peace. 
an ideal ruling by a judge, and God is the judge of all judges, creates a peace. It creates a sense of that was just, that was honorable, that was good for society. We know all across our land there are judges that are making awful rulings when it comes to justice, when it comes to upholding the good of society. Good judgment upholds and honors peace in all forms. But oftentimes Christians and non-Christians find the Bible barbaric in its judgments. I was just talking to someone yesterday, and you're going to be able to figure this out, some of you, who this individual is, but I don't care. If the person was here, I'd say it in front of them. But this person is the, the Grand Pumbaa, this great festival that remembers uh, people that came into this area. And I offered to do a booth for this festival, not to proselytize, not to, you know, just like go and preach to people, but to share the history of the Bible the book that inspired this group of people that this organization desires to memorialize, that inspired them to come here, to come to this land, the very book. And as I, I kind of expressed the idea, and I, I, I told them about all the artifacts that we have, we have Bibles from Geneva that were printed in Geneva because it was illegal to hold the Bible in and, uh, and, uh Scotland at the time by John Knox. We had Bibles that w would have, you know, come over the, in the ocean. We have the Schlater Bible back there that is the oldest Bible really of this region that we, for the people of our region, that's, that that church still has. We have amazing artifacts. And, and I said, you know, to tell the story of these people, to have all these booze, to have this great festival, and not have the, a history about the book that inspired people to come out here and tell them, you know, about the history of the importance of this book, it, it just seems like you're missing something here. And, and he answered me and he says, I get it. I know everything you're saying is true. I know it's a part of their legacy. I know it's what inspired them. I know it's what brought them here. I know everything you're saying is true. But it might offend some people. It might offend some people. And I said, I'm not going to do a sermon. It's just going to, no, no, you don't understand. The Bible itself might offend some people. And we have that idea because really we have a terrible doctrine of judgment. He made a judgment that the Bible's judgment do not, does not serve a purpose to bring a greater peace, but that the Bible's judgments are bad. And they can't be welcomed in public. And it, and it would be better not to teach people about the historic past if we have to teach the idea that they were inspired by the Word of God. If, if the Word of God, in one sense, was a statue, let's rip it down so nobody has to see it. And that's the world we live in. That's, that's the society 
that we live in. It's offensive. This book doesn't keep the peace, is the idea. So no thank you, preacher man, no thank you. Even though you want to share a true history of those who preceded us, what they believed, and showed the pages of the Bible that they held so dear to them, no thank you. And honestly, I sort of have to defend his conclusion. He's probably read the book of Acts. You know, in the book of Acts, when Paul goes to a city and he shares the word, there's usually either one or two things happen. A riot or a revival. And by the way, Jesus has these kind of moments too in the gospel. Because people don't like to consider and look at the word. But the American church has got it backwards. They think the church is at its best when it's never talking about the judgments of God. But on the Bible, on the other hand, the actual word of God suggests the way of peace, even for the saved, is through judgment. I want you to think for a moment of the world as a refrigerator. And at first, everything that was put into this refrigerator we call the world was good. We, we know this from Genesis 1. God put good things into it, good things into it. And God made Adam the first unique watchman in one sense, the first Maytag man in one sense of this refrigerator we call Earth. And, you know, God didn't want the Maytag man to be uh, lonely, and so he gave Adam a helper as well. But ultimately, the charge was to the first Adam of keeping this incubator. Uh, would it succeed or would it fail? Would Adam be a conqueror, to use some language that we're going to get into in this passage, on behalf of God, going forth to subdue it, or would he be a coward? And what did the first Adam ultimately do? He broke the refrigerator by being a coward rather than a conqueror. And all the food spoiled inside of it. Everything in the world of creation spoiled and turned rotten. Do you know what would break the core of this church? By us becoming a group of cowards rather than conquerors. More on that in verses 7 and 8. Remember my wife and I on vacation, and uh, I've talked about this vacation a lot. It was our, our trip, our loan trip that we've taken to Hawaii. We were told to house sit. I mean, that was awesome. All of a sudden, could afford a trip to Hawaii because we just we don't have to pay for accommodations. And we get to the property. The property is amazing. The property is on the beachfront. It has its own little private strand of beach. It's like uh, coconuts and rainbows, and it just beautiful weather. It's it's glorious. And then we walk in the house, and there is this stench of death. The refrigerator had been packed full, and it had died at some point, and the stink of it all. And so what did we do? We got trash bags. We started throwing away all that stunk. And occasionally there was one thing we say, we set that aside. We go, ah, that, that, that'll save. That'll keep. That'll keep. My wife shakes her head. She wants it all burned. But, but God, in his great refrigerator, he's a God who, 
who has come into this spoiled world, and yeah, some, some vessels he throws into Gehenna. He throws into his trash can. He throws them into judgment as a way of further securing the peace of this world. But others he sets aside. He sets aside in his judgment. He sets aside through, we'll see the gospel for a greater use so that they might become worshipers in the new thing that is to come. God promised our first parents he would fix this world once again from the vile stench of sin. And since then, God has been at work towards this promise, throwing some of that bad, what's gone bad, into Gehenna, into his trash heap in judgment, and yet some vessels, again, setting apart individuals and households here and there so that they can be a part of God creating a people who will worship him forever. Our forefathers knew that. That's why I wanted to share about the Bible. And our passage today in Revelation is when God fully fixes the refrigerator. And how does he fix it? He fixes the fridge by making all things new. Now, we humans are a people who often buck against things that are new. We are much more at home at preserving decay. Major sectors of our worldwide economy, from cosmetics to fitness to dietary realities to medical care to certain tradesmen work, is about making, not about making things new, but about slowing the decay of things. Putting a little less, little paint on them, wiping away a little of the grime, making our bodies run a little better than they were the day before. And it's not that God doesn't appreciate such work. There's, a, there's an aspect of that of being a good steward, but we tend to just be a little suspicious of things that are new. I mean, for example, who has joined me in complaining about the work being done on the traffic circle at Shelley and Old Skipback Pike? Yes. It's a new, annoying thing. Now, PennDOT had decided to just, like, pave over a couple potholes. Well, great. Good job, PennDOT. But it's new. And I'm going to grumble the whole time. I'm sure I'll grumble after it comes because we're just kind of wired that way. But it's helpful to remember, and as we see in this passage, that God is making clear in his judgments the old has to pass away. We have to come to terms with that fact in order to appreciate the judgment of God. God's going to throw a lot of things away while fixing the refrigerator of this world. There are ways to avoid being cast off in Gehenna, but we are often uncomfortable, as we've talked about, with that reality. But it's not really ours to disagree with. How he fixes things. We broke it. We can't fix it. This is how God will fix it. He will fix it through judgment. So John begins his vision with watching a new heaven and new earth beginning to descend upon an old earth which has been put to death. The new city starts coming down on a place where the passage says, has no more sea. Now for the hyper-literalists, they, they think, oh, this means there's no oceans in heaven. That's not what it says there in the Greek. Realize this city is coming down on the footprint of Jerusalem. It's going to be a massive city. It's a city that ex extends... Uh, to put it into perspective for an American audience, Seattle to Fargo, North Dakota. Fargo, North Dakota to Houston. Houston to San Diego. San Diego to Seattle. 
And so for a city like that to come down, immediately the Jewish context, the Jewish reader is going, what are you going to do with the sea? It's going to cover the Mediterranean, part of it, all the way to Greece. But as we talked about in Sunday school, the sea really is looked at as judgment. For Israel, their, their history with the sea is one of uh, suspicion. The Gentile nations often approached and attacked from the sea. Uh, the, the sea is seen as chaotic, as, as um, yes, the sea can bring blessing, but the sea could also bring curse. The sea also is a depiction of death. You can go to Jonah chapter 2 and read his song where it looks like actually Jonah died three days in the whale, but if you don't have to take that view, but there's this imagery of death in the sea. And, and so death is this ultimate chaos. Death is this ultimate sea that needs to be defeated. So for instance, for purposes of Exodus, some of the sea that Moses had to deal with was his feelings of limitations, of not being qualified. Some of the criticism that he received from the congregation, uh, actually having to deal with Pharaoh, actually having to deal with the magicians. Uh, later on, it will be having to deal with even his own family betraying him and his own priests betraying him. And, and so these were the seas of Moses' life in one sense, and, and, and we all desire to see the seas be stilled. What are the seas of our days? We see philosophical movements, godless political ideologies, uh, perversions. We see all of these chaotic kinds of situations, and, and we go, oh, Lord, you, you need to still these seas. You need to calm these waters. Some of that is tied into this idea of seas. And so as this sea, city descends, the sea is brought still. The sea is receded. How wonderful it will be when some of the nonsense of our present world, that those seas, those waters, those waves, that chaos is stilled. And so the Apostle John is ultimately speaking of a time where all the thrashing of the evil waters in the midst of God's people will be once and for all done. And all that will remain is a world that is a most holy capital city that descends upon the earth. And one day peace will fall upon us from heaven. We often think, especially as Americans, we've exported this dream to the world. The way to improve things in the world is more stuff based on the horizontal plane. More food, more clothes, bigger homes, more internet access, more and more. The more we get, the more we'll be happy. And yet, the more does not give happiness and peace. God, through his righteous judgment, gives happiness and peace. What was one of the biggest stories of our Newsweek? It was the great num multitude of people crossing the border. Our government greeting them with, you know, things like cell phones and, and bus rides and, and exporting them all throughout the country. And I'm not going to get into the political nature of this. You know what an ironic, sad tragedy of that is, though? Let's imagine. The farthest somebody could come from uh, to travel in the U.S. on this continent would be Chile. You go from Chile, you could 
depending on how you walked, you could go through Argentina, you go through Brazil, you go through Paraguay, you go through, uh, you know, if you really took a crazy route, you could go through Venezuela, you go through Colombia, you could go through Mexico, Panama, Guatemala, 18 different countries. You could walk up to 18 country, different countries very reasonably in getting to the United States. The place of a lot of things. place of a lot of prosperity and stuff. You know one of the great ironies of that walk? Of that walking to that nation of a shining city on a hill? The depression rates in all 18 of the nations that you could walk through are lower than the United States. They are more likely to be unhappy here than they are in the countries they walk through. Almost twice as unhappy as like Mexico. Why is that? Why is that? Why is that American dream? Why is that American city? Why is that desire? Why, why is this most prosperous of nations one of the most depressed nations in all the world? Well, too many people, in a poor judgment, are walking towards the wrong kinds of cities. They're not walking towards the heavenly kind of city. They're walking towards the things of the world. They're walking towards the philosophies of the world. They're walking towards the stuff of the world. They're walking towards the stuff that is just of creation. And they are not walking closer and closer towards an intimate relationship with their creator. They, in their judgment, have made a grave mistake. But there is a city, as we can read in verses 3 and 4, where God will wipe away every old tear of pain, every old kind of death and decay will be gone, every old sorrow, every old cry, all of that kind of stuff will be thrown away once and for all for those who come to it. So we walk there in judgment of this is a better peace to be found. The eternal shalom. Peace isn't found by walking across the Rio Grande or in a border fence protecting the Rio Grande or by receiving a cell phone by the government at the border. This isn't found by the ability to buy more things or to have more things. Even this city that we read about in this passage would be hell without the presence of God. It would just be another version of hell with him. We find peace by finding the great and just kingly judge whose judgments are right and good and whose word is true. And we walk in faith towards him and we embrace his ways and his statutes. We walk to the God who has promised to make all things new. What does this God want from us? And these will really be the last verses we'll focus on. We can see the contrast of what God calls us to in verses 7 and 8. He wants us to be warrior conquerors, devoted to helping make things new, instead of a weak coward who tries to broker peace with evil. He says of these warriors in verse 7, they will have a heritage with God. They will be like sons to him. The observant hearer of these verses might have heard some of these things actually said in Psalm 2. But what are we supposed to conquer? 
I think we get a glimpse of it actually in the very next verse. Now, verse 8 is a very scary verse at first glance because to varying degrees I have been guilty of every sin that is about to be named. And honestly, I would guess for most in this room, you also have been guilty of every sin that is about to be named. God speaks to the cowards he's going to judge in verse 8. And he says of these cowards, they have been faithless. But I have been faithless. He says these cowards have been detestable. But I have been detestable. He says these cowards have been murderers. But I have been a murderer. Not in the sense that would send you to jail for homicide, but as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, even in being angry in an ungodly way towards someone, struggling to grant forgiveness towards someone, that's a murderous kind of sin. If you struggle with forgiveness, you struggle with murder. And I am certainly guilty of that. The cowardly are also sexually immoral. And I have been guilty of being sexually immoral. What about sorcery? Surely not sorcery, Pastor. No, I'm guilty of that too. Because sorcery in the Greek is pharmakia, which is where the, we get the word pharmacy from. And what's the bad kind of pharmakia? The one that alters your mind in a sinful way. The kind that can occur in drinking too much or altering your mind through other, other ungodly ways. So yes, I'm guilty of sorcery too. Idolatry, of course. Lying, yes. And so every one of those qualities from the cowardly, I'm guilty of. Having done, at many points in my life, these very things, even after I have become a Christian, I've fallen into many of these sins. And what do I do with those sins? And what do you do with those sins? Does that just mean we're guilty as cowards in God's judgment? Well, it depends. It depends on how you come to these sins in judgment. It is most dangerous for us to try to justify our sins. We try to explain them away or rationalize them or we make a habit of them or we create kind of a new idea, a new theology in order to justify holding to them. Why they need to remain near and dear in our lives and, they, and God overlooks them. And yet, this is the God who desires to make all things new. This is the problem of the coward. The coward doesn't really want all things to be new. They want a minor patch up. They want a, 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 a small pothole fixed in their life week in and week out when it comes to the struggles of sin. They don't want a real, new, to enter the battle and to receive a true new life change. Another amazing thing about the coward's list of verse 8. In each and every one of these things listed, we both have an, they both have an internal reality to them. One that is, is fought from within. And they also have an external reality. Are we externally fighting for these things in our society? So, there's a relational component to it. So how can I be one as Christ calls a conqueror over and against the one who Christ calls a coward? The conqueror is one who fights for something new. The coward is someone who's content to live in the old. And the difference of the two individuals, the conqueror of verse 7 and the coward of verse 8, is not in fa found in the fact that the conquerors never stunk in sin or were 
not worthy of being thrown into the trash heap of judgment, but the conqueror fights against sin in service to God, where the coward will not fight against sins and claim to know God. The conqueror will fight against faithlessness, both within themselves by desiring to be further shaped and grow in their deepen their faith in the word, but also the courage to stand up for the word in public. A coward's not going to do that. Bruce uh, Clydesdale and I were out in public uh, this week, and we were standing in line, and the lady behind us was talking to, I believe, her husband, and she was sharing a, a reality of her workplace situation where she had to stand up for her faith and say no. 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 That's not how we should do business. That's not how we should do these things. We need to have a Christian principle to these things. We, she, she actually uh, invoked the name of Christ and what Christ would call this business to do. And she had no idea I was listening in, and I just turned around. And I just said, good job. That's just so encouraging to hear someone who was willing to stand up in such a way. Good job, sister. And that's a conqueror. That woman's a conqueror. She's not a coward. That's the kind of thing we're called to. She was fighting the battle against the faithless. And she did so with wisdom and gentleness and respect. She had the right kind of idea of God's judgment. And she was fighting for a greater heavenly kind of peace. We also need to fight against what is detestable. The one who conquers will do so. Both by not allowing what is detestable to consume them, but also publicly standing against evil. People don't like it when you stand against evil, but nonetheless, that is part of the work of the conqueror. If you want to be a part of the conquerors who are welcomed in, this is a part of your work. If you want to be a coward, check out. Don't worry about it. As Because the one who is making... A, all things new, he doesn't have any time for cowards. He honors conquerors. How can the conqueror be against murder? Interpersonally, we have to deal with our anger. Those times where anger gets the best of us, we have to quickly see amends and, and to seek restitution. How about in public? We need to stand up for lives. And society often wants to murder. The, the world loves to murder both people at the very beginning of their lives or at the very end of their lives. That's going to amplify in years to come. It has this gross fascination with cutting short life as it begins or as it's nearing its end. But also murder deals with the hatred of people based on skin color or political philosophy or different class opinions and differences. You know, the kinds of things that if you watch the mainstream news, they love to amplify. Fight against that world. That world just wants to give in to anger. Be a conqueror. Fight against these systems that pit neighbor against neighbor based on superficial and arbitrary differences. Be a conqueror here rather than a coward. The conqueror will fight against drunkenness and other forms of losing grasp of reality and sense and the laws and philosophies that promote it. So are you a conqueror here? Are you a coward? 
The conqueror will fight against the temptation of pornography or, or other forms of infidelity to God. And if married, also to their spouse. They'll fight against the godless sexual ethics that want to expose kids to books that are so indecent, not even adults should read them. So are you a conqueror here or are you a coward? The conqueror will fight against idolatry and false gods. False idols in the public that it declares good. So are you a conqueror here or are you a coward? The conqueror will fight against the lies in this world. The lies we often tell ourselves. In order to be able to better represent truth. So are you a conqueror here or are you a coward? The conqueror will fight. And the battle will be over lines of these very words. And the coward will avoid the fight. It will think that being so bold as to draw lines is wrong. It might offend some people. We can't have that at our public gatherings. We can't have that as we remember past generations. That's shameful. That's to be canceled. It's not welcome in polite society. And that's why the God who makes all things new isn't interested in celebrating the coward. But rather, he's looking for warrior conquerors. And so do you live your Christian life knowing that you once were a coward, but hopefully are you now a conqueror for the Lord? Or are you cowardly refraining and giving safe harbor, harbor both to sin in your life, but also in those relationships that you have, the lives of those around you. What are your worries? What are you fighting over? Who are you fighting with? What are you contending for? The judgments of God are meant to bring peace, but fewer and fewer people seem to be willing to live that out both personally and publicly in our own day as warriors in our midst. We are more ashamed of this legacy of our Christian forebears rather than honored to be a part of this battle, this cosmic battle raging over the chaotic seas of life. But the cowards will have no inheritance in the celestial city that the faithful walk towards. Only the courageous conquerors will make it there. While the conquerors and the cowards both objectively started in the same spot, Only one heeds the call of, right, of the righteous judgment of God. And the beautiful thing about embracing the life of a warrior conqueror is that we can see through judgment that salvation comes to us. Because our warrior king came down upon this earth and he lived the life that we simply could not live. And he died the death that we deserve to die so that he could be judged in our place. So that in the goodness of God's judgment, we did not have to be thrown into the trash heap of Gehenna. Maybe to tie back in the refrigerator imagery, it's funny. Every time I go visit my mom, my mom is legendary for never cleaning out her fridge. My wife knows this. I usually wait till she's left the house 
but I will throw stuff away. I one time in the 90s found something that expired in the 70s in a refrigerator. It, it was crazy. And then I told her how I threw it away and I found it and she was mad at me for throwing it away. She is legendary for this. And the thing is, she seen me and no, don't throw that away. No, don't throw that away. No, don't throw... Mom, this is pate that expired back when Obama was still in office. Let's, like, let's, get it, let's set it free. The coward's looking back. The coward's looking for small patch jobs. The, cow, the coward isn't looking as the conqueror looks. As conquerors, we're looking to the new. We're looking to the new heavenly city to come. We're looking to our, our newborn king at Christmas time. We're looking to our risen, the newness of our risen king on Easter. We are looking to the glory and grandeur of our conqueror warrior king for our inspiration. We trust his word and we live by his word and we desire to become more faithful to that word because of our love for him. And our love for him starts in the fact that he allowed judgment to fall on himself for our sin and for our salvation and for our sake. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, in the refrigerator of life, we all have things that are going to be expired and tossed into the trash heap, sins that we cling to, struggles that we have succumbed to. Continue to purify us, Lord by the strength of your Holy Spirit. Give us courage to uh, avoid the sins of the coward. Let us fight courageously against such sins and such temptations, both within and also outside in our interpersonal relationships. Let us have the wisdom to do it with gentleness and respect, but let us not forsake the high call that it is to fight against such sin. And now, Lord, as we close in prayer, we take a moment quietly and privately. Consider the moments of even this past week where we looked more like the coward in verse 8 rather than the conqueror of verse 7 and confess those things before you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.